1: Hello, this is Ian Drake of Montclair State University and the New Books Network. I am glad to be joined today by Harold Holzer. He is a Lincoln scholar and a prize-winning author of numerous books on the Civil War era art and history, including Lincoln and the Power of the Press, The War for Public Opinion, and Lincoln, How Abraham Lincoln Ended Slavery in America. Mr. Holzer appears frequently on radio and television television most recently on C-SPAN and CNN and in Lincoln and Civil War documentaries for the BBC, PBS, and the History Channel. He is formerly the Senior Vice President for Public Affairs at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City and Chairman of the Abraham Lincoln Bicentennial Commission and Foundation. He currently serves as the Director of the Roosevelt House Public Policy Institute at Hunter College at the City University of New York. And in 2008, He was awarded the National Humanities Medal. We are joined by Mr. Holzer today in order to discuss his latest book, which is in some ways about Lincoln, but it's actually a biography of someone connected to Lincoln. Monument Man, The Life and Art of Daniel Chester French. Mr. Holzer, thanks for joining us on the New Books Network. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. So is this the first book you've ever published without Lincoln in the title?
2: That's a really good question, no, I think there've been a like the Civil War and fifty objects. I couldn't get Lincoln into that title either. the <laughs> civil mine eyes have seen the glory, the Civil War in art. It may be the first without either Lincoln or the Civil War, so on that count it's unique
1: but Lincoln is on the cover page, uh, or at least uh his <laughs> so, yeah, image it, is uh, yeah, and, and a, so go ahead
2: oh, it's an image. Um, to try to visualize it for the listeners. It's an image of the Lincoln Memorial, which is my subject's greatest and most well-known work, um, In just as it was created uh, before 1920 in Washington, and with the sculptor standing in front of his work. If you could see closely, and I, it's hard to do so, he's rather proudly in front of this behemoth that he'd created.
1: And so uh, Daniel Chester French is one of the best known 19th, early 20th century sculptures. Um, obviously, Lincoln and the subject of the Lincoln Memorial drew you to him. But there are, of course, a lot of artists who have rendered uh, memorable and notable images of Lincoln uh, in a variety of mediums. What drew you to French in particular?
2: Well, two things. One, one is inspiration and one is opportunity. Uh, the inspiration came really uh, about, gosh, 45 or more years ago on our first visit to the Berkshires uh, in southern Massachusetts. And we went there specifically to meet a childhood idol of mine, a Hungarian-born Lincoln scholar named Stefan Laurent, who wrote books about Lincoln photographs in the 1950s. I just love those books. They really are what helped inspire me into the field. And the idea that he would receive us in the place where he'd written those books was really exciting. Anyway, we met him. He was extraordinary. He was charming. And then he said, have you ever seen Chesterwood? I don't think we even knew what Chesterwood was. Well, it was the next in the next town um, east, and it was um, Daniel Chester French's summer home and studio. He sped off with us in this car toward Chesterwood and just gave us a personal tour, uh, including a bust that French's daughter had made of him, of Laurent, when they were friends or more than friends, who knows. But it was pretty exciting. So we, we started going back to the Berkshires almost every summer. Um, we took our kids there when they were small. For the last 10 years, we've Taking our kids plus our grandson, everybody loves it, and we always make a beeline for Chesterwood, and we see the models for the Lincoln Memorial and his other great Lincoln statue in Lincoln, uh, in uh, Lincoln, Nebraska. So that's the inspiration part. A per- I feel a personal connection to the place, and that is just that is even beyond visits to the statue itself, which never failed to inspire us. About four years ago, the folks at Chesterwood simply came to me and asked me if I would allow them to commission me to write a a biography, at long last, of French. None had ever been done outside of the family. There's a book by his wife. There's a book by his daughter. There are catalogs of his works, but no cradle-to-grave biography. So I was just tapped on the shoulder and asked to dance, and it was a a thrill. And uh, I've done a couple of books on commission, as they say in the trade. Um, It's got to be a labor of love, and it was. So I can't say it was my idea, but I can say that it was percolating in my head for almost half a century.
1: And so uh, this is uh, someone who is only at the, be- the very beginning of his life uh, overlapping with Lincoln's life. He's born in 1850, right. so he's he's a teenager when Lincoln uh, dies. And you give some indication of the impression that other members of the family had uh, upon hearing of Lincoln's death. So um, can you d- describe his, his boyhood and how uh, he came into being an artist?
2: Sure. And of course, I prayed that he would have taken note of Lincoln's death that would have been a great story because he wrote a diary as a teenager but it was all about bird watching <laughs> so on April 15th 1865 which is uh, almost the day that we're having this conversation the anniversary of Lincoln's death he wrote that he'd seen the first speckled something or other uh, of the season and that's what interested him his future wife who was younger than he and a cousin. I mean, he's got a very complicated family. His his wife, even as a child, remembered people chattering, people crying. His uncle worked for Abraham Lincoln. He was the superintendent of public buildings, and he prepared the cat the catafalque in the White House for his funeral. So members of his family were involved. His great rival, Augustus Saint Gaudens, s- stood on line at age seventeen or eighteen. To see Lincoln's body at City Hall in New York City. But I couldn't get French close to, closer than to the subject than bird watching on the day of his death. So he had a, he had a very nice childhood. His father moved around a bit in, uh, uh Massachusetts. He was a college president at what is now UMass Dartmouth. He settled in, he lived in Cambridge, Massachusetts for a while. Another nice college town, as you may have heard. And then uh, settled in Concord, Massachusetts, near Boston, which, of course, was a place of great intellectual ferment. Ralph Waldo Emerson lived there. Thoreau had lived there. The Olcott sisters lived there. And it was just a tremendously inspiring place. And uh, he grew up there. His father wanted him to go to MIT. He tried. He failed. And his first art lessons were with May Olcott, the sister of Louisa May Olcott and the uh, the model for the character of Amy in Little Women. Uh, and she told the father, yes, this kid has talent. You know, implicitly let him drop out of MIT and try to make, become a professional artist. And then in his early 20s, his hometown decides to do a statue of the Minuteman on the 100th anniversary of the fight at the Concord Bridge. Well,
1: and let me interrupt any- you before. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. Let me interrupt you before we talk about his major sculpture with the Minute Man. That's his first okay. big, notable yeah. work. I just, I was struck by. I'm an, uh, I'm a historian, but uh, I'm not someone who reads a lot of art history. And so I was uh, struck by the fact that for the few uh, art biographies that I've read, you often their early lives, no matter when they lived, uh, are sometimes just a mystery about how they started and how they came to art. But I thought it was notable that he started out. The earliest evidence, it seems, that you had of his artistic interest was that he starts sculpting turnips. Right.
2: <laughs> well, I think the earliest is a snow sculpture ah, that okay. some of the famous people in Concord took note of, and then he does turnips, um, and he likes to leave them on his father's dinner plate to see if he can get a rise out of them. and his father never fails to do a big, you know, a big take, as they say in show business, when he sees a frog on his plate. So, uh, yeah, he started with whatever tools he had available, and uh, those were the
1: tools. And, of course, you mentioned his father. Uh, One thing that was striking uh, also to me and somewhat um, unusual is that uh, there's no antipathy or no uh, desire on his part to surpass his father or resist his father. Instead, his father is really his greatest champion throughout the rest of his father's life, right?
2: Sometimes um, overdoing it. He gets into some trouble uh, because he, he becomes a assistant uh, treasury secretary in several Republican administrations in Washington. And he unabashedly tries to get his son um, commissions to uh, to do sculpture on new public buildings that the Treasury Department is is uh, creating. So, um, yeah, he's he's his father's biggest uh, cha- he's his son's biggest champion, and it's it's heartwarming. He's hands on. He's a PR agent. He gets him work, and he pushes him along, and obviously very very proud.
1: Right, so he's a nineteenth century version of a stage parent right
2: uh yeah so, uh, what's unusual about it is not only that it becomes a stage dad but that he really wanted his son to be uh both of his sons to be quote professionals uh he wanted them both to be to follow him they had a, a on both sides of the family judges and lawyers, and that's what he thought from the minute his son was born, he saw him as. A, uh, a future barrister, if you will, and both of his sons, to his shock, became art historians or artists. his, his son his oldest son, uh, became a lecturer, uh, an amateur painter, and eventually the first and very long served director of the art Institute of chicago, and he, who also helped his brother so it's quite an interlocking directory, and his father was more than. More than uh, uh, tolerant, he was a champion.
1: Right. So, coming back to the Minuteman statue, statue, uh, this is his first, as it is the big break for him. Yes. Uh, fortuitous. And I'm that sorry. In-
2: I'm sorry. I rushed that story a little bit.
1: Oh no. Well, it's 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 a fascinating story, and it, you know, with his connection to Concord and the literary community there. Uh, I want to talk about uh, the statute and uh, statue and its uh, process of creation, but also uh, if you could comment on the fortuitousness of living in Concord itself and how his life, uh, you know, was really shaped. His early career, at least, was really shaped by the de facto place where he lived.
2: Well, the the proof positive of that is that when this commission was being discussed, uh, there was no competition for this statue. The hometown boy had it in the bag. Now, whether that's because Judge French, his dad, pushed a bit or whether he was well-liked, I assume it's a combination of both. But on a statue of that scale and public importance and potential for tourism attraction, that's a big deal to go to a young man, by the way, who had never done a statue. He had done a few busts. uh, Of his family, but he'd never done a full-length statue. He'd never done a larger-than-life statue, so this was a a big risk for them too. And maybe that's why they didn't offer him an an honorarium. He he got this. He was asked to do this just for expenses. So there was he. They took a little bit of advantage of him, uh, although they later gave him a bonus. But um, and he was angry about it. He never forgot it. But still, it was a big risk. And the hometown connection, Emerson's enthusiasm for him uh, definitely swayed the group. Even when he submitted a model that they didn't like, they, just, they didn't fire him. They didn't open up the competition. They simply said, try again. So the hometown creds really helped him through.
1: So in terms of the process of uh, creation for this, it was intriguing how... Um, he goes through a process of trying to determine just the right way of situating the body and how to present this body of this Minuteman. Can you explain some of the uh methods that he utilized in order to create this unique statue
2: sure well first of all the the pose and um if anyone needs a refresher on the image, all you have to do is you know google Minuteman it's been the. The brand, the brand icon of everything from uh, from um, uh, savings bonds to the NRA to instant pudding over the years, he wanted to uh, and was instructed to present uh, the image of not a professional soldier but a you know very traditional American military uh, man that is a yeoman farmer with his own rifle at his plow, suddenly stirred to action by the invasion of the British. And the idea was to create a guy suddenly reaching for his coat and his gun, abandoning the plow, hearing something in the air, sensing something in the distance, and ready to defend his home and fight for freedom. That's a hard mixture to do. And you have to do that in the expression, the tilt of the head. And French's focus was on the legs, the torsion of the legs, that he's ready to step forward into the action. Um, and he was very concerned about getting that right. He studied uh, Roman statues that were on view at the Boston Athenaeum nearby, uh, consulted books, used a local model, got, asked locals to bring him period uh, costumes uh, the coat that he used, the green cloth coat with brass buttons that he used for his Minuteman, still survives at the Concord Museum. The powder horn on his belt still survives. So the, the accoutrements, the tools are still there. Uh, and that's how he begins with this desire to create a sense of tension and movement.
1: Right. And and in regard to his model, you had noted that the Apollo Belvedere famous uh, statue is uh, really the model for this legs in the sense that it's moving. It's an unusual kind of positioning of the legs. And uh, so that struck me um, that he really, from the very beginning, with his first uh, big uh, commission that will become notable for him and associated with his name, uh, that from the beginning, he really does, throughout his career, try to distinguish himself. He doesn't just do workman work. He really seems to want to uh, become notable and unique.
2: And and wealthy. There is never, <laughs> yeah. you know, I, I emphasize this and I don't think it should embarrass him that he wanted to be financially successful. He wanted to be famous um, and he succeeded. He wanted to eclipse of competition and his teachers so there was there was that there was that drive in him uh, as well and um yeah he treated each commission as a challenge um worked really hard we we unfortunately we don't have surviving sketches that he might have done except for the sketches of the apollo belvedere legs which he did draw he was not a bad artist But I think he may have worked later with chalk and blackboard because he didn't want one-dimensional records of his work to survive. He wanted the sculptures to speak for themselves. All of this, we have to intuit because he did not leave any kind of illuminating record of what he has in mind. Or if he did, it's cursory, it's rare. He talks generally, for example, about caring as much about the positioning of hands as he does about the face. But other than that, he constantly says he wants his sculpture to speak for itself or themselves. Um, So we have to intuit what he's after. And that was sort of a challenge in doing the book, but fun. And you noted that you aren't an art historian. I'm not an art historian either. I worked for nearly a quarter of a century at the Metropolitan Museum of Art but was always aware that I was on the administrative side, uh, which was fine. Um, and the two major reviews that I've gotten so far from the Wall Street Journal and the New Criterion, the critic in both cases took pains to say, he is not an art historian about me. and uh, But that serves this project well. So um, I, I'm approaching it as a biographer uh, a generalist biographer, almost the way Walter Isaacson um, approached his Leonardo book. Not that I'm comparing myself to Walter or uh, French to Leonardo, but, uh, or is it Michelangelo? I think it's Michelangelo. Sorry.
1: Right. Uh, no, it's well, I think it was Leonardo. Back to Leonardo. Leonardo. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, in regard to the way that um, uh, chess, uh, French worked. I was also, and this, again, is my naive layman's ignorance of how uh, sculptors actually work. I had the naive conception that the sculptor conceives of it, puts their hands, gets it dirty, and they take it through all of the stages, all the way to the final polished finished product. But apparently, uh, these are truly collaborative works, um, and it was notable to me how Uh, French is really a conceiver, a conceptualizer and an initial drafter in clay, but ultimately the actual final carving and the, uh, the sculpting is done by others. Um,
2: I know that was, uh, yeah. yeah. Um, I, people were surprised by this. Um, even those who have a passing knowledge of his work or the, um, the details of sculpting in the 19th century but what i tell audience is that he is not michelangelo he does not get a block of carrara marble and then spend 15 years chipping away until david emerges that's not the way 19th century sculptors worked at their best or at their most famous they had studios or ateliers and they had staffs to work with them and while the concept is the sculptors, and the first model is the sculptors. I mean, he was a skilled sculptor, there's no question about it, and he did all of the enlarging work, for example, for the Minutemen. So he would do a model, then he would do a larger model, and as each model is made, he would have it done in plaster so that the clay model would be preserved. And finally, a larger model. So with the Lincoln Memorial, the most famous work, there's a tiny surviving model in plaster, then there's a three-foot model, and then there's a six-and-a-half-foot model. Ultimately, it's going to be 19 feet high. Um, so he takes the, the – he makes successively larger models. His staff does the casting from his clay, and then it's either um, made in a foundry in bronze. Sometimes he supervises, but often he doesn't. And then, when the bronze emerges and it cools, then he goes to work again, burnishing the edges, doing highlighting, etc. Um, with the works in marble, like the Lincoln Memorial, he turns it over to marble carvers, uh, who are professionals in their own right, and uh, he leaves the work to them. Visiting the place where they work, making changes, adding polish. Um, so it is collaborative, but I would still give, you know, overwhelming credit to the sculptor. Sculptors were considered the artists, and the carvers and foundries were considered the craftsmen. And I think that's pretty much, uh, you know, the relevant uh, ascription of credit that we should still um, give to French and others like him.
1: But he does later in his career, as you note, know, with some of his more notable. Uh, commissions. He does actually give kind of a uh, credit on the statue itself to other uh, what we, what would we call them collaborators, assistants.
2: Um, I'm going to have to think of a better word. Collaborators is too much. Assistance is too little. Uh, but <laughs> we'll have to we'll have to develop one as we talk. But yeah, he wanted to credit the Italian American immigrant marble carvers from the Bronx, New York who carved the Lincoln Memorial. And it, it, theirs was no question a remarkable skill. I mean, they took his models. He did a life-size head, for example, nine, uh, in proportion to a 19-foot body. He did that. They had the, the models in their Bronx you know, shed. It's actually right near where Yankee Stadium is today. Um, and only a few years later, Yankee Stadium would be built there, so the original stadium. Um, and they just carved, they carved um, 28 blocks. Well, they carved 23, far, five of the flawed marble blocks were used in the interior to support it. They carved 23 blocks of marble with different sections of Lincoln's body and chair. It was not assembled until the blocks were shipped to Washington. The the remarkable thing about these guys, they were called the Pichirilli brothers, is that they had such an instinct that they knew it would fit together. Uh, And French just came down and worked on the seams and worked on the highlights. But it was such a uh, a remarkable skill that they could envision it assembled as easily as they could uh, envision it piece by piece.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
1: about these Pichirilli brothers, they seem like they're deserving of a biography in and of themselves because it was, it really struck me. There's this father who's an, I I think he is an immigrant, right? The, the original father. Oh, they're all immigrants. The, the the, the,
2: older brothers.
1: Oh, okay. So all the brothers actually were born in Italy and they migrated over together. Yes. And it's six sons and all six sons, they all work together. And at one point, I think there's a description by a, a contemporary who says, one of the brothers would work. If he got tired, the other one would pick up and intuitively seem to know exactly what his exactly. brother was intending.
2: And, but, and but so for this me, is a unique. For me, a food obsessive, the best thing I found in, this, in the magazine articles I consulted was that they one of the brothers would cook pasta for lunch every day. So when they took the lunch break, that's French happened to get there during lunch break time. He was no fool. Um And got to partake of macaroni or spaghetti uh, in an area that's still known for great Italian food. So there you go.
1: (laughs) So um, it was notable how uh, this this method of uh, taking these commissions um, is really this kind of we'll call it somewhat collaborative effort, right? Uh, And 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 so this was a norm for sculptors of the period. So St. Gaudens is doing the same thing in terms exactly. of this kind of process. Auguste exactly. Rodin is doing yeah. the same thing. Okay. And so um, is this
2: also- Well, Rodin may, be, Rodin may be doing a little more carving over in Paris than than the boys in the United States are doing, but St. Gaudens is certainly doing it this way. He does more bronzes than, than fewer marbles. But, um, you know, essentially uh, our, our heroes, uh, creative geniuses, make- The models enlarge the models themselves. Keeping, let me—I have to work a little harder to give to get you to acknowledge all the credit I think French deserves. Um, I know we we credit soldiers as much as generals these days, but I'm going to make one more pitch for the general. So, French, as he creates the models closer and closer to the size they're ultimately going to be uh, finalized in, he has a studio now in Massachusetts with a railroad track to hold the platform on which he is building his models. When he's ready, he has his workers wheel the boxcar out into the open. These great big doors open, they push the sculpture out. I mean, it's a little bit scary. I've seen them do it with a marble, but with a big tall plaster, you know, one false move and it's gone. They push it out into the open, he's got a slight hill down there. He can go down the hill and look look at the work, and then scamper right back up, get on a ladder and fix something. Why? Because even though he's working face to face with one of his faces, let's say he's got to imagine how it's going to look from thirty feet below or ten feet below, so the perspective always has to be imagined or recreated by. Simulating the environment, simulating a pedestal by using his hillside—it's a very hard thing to do. Because if you look, and and I uh, let me segue by by noting that whenever I hear the arguments for taking Confederate monuments and putting them quote in museums, I I I whatever the uh, the social uh, argument is back and forth on this. Um, Just from an artistic point of view, if you put them down at eye level, they look grotesque because they're meant to be seen from way below. And that's another extraordinary skill that French and his colleagues slash collaborators had. They could envision the perspective, the deep perspective that would exist if you were, for example, uh, uh, on on a street in Boston looking up at the brand new post office with uh, a, a sculptural group that French had designed there. Okay that's my pitch.
1: Okay well no I think and I think you're quite right. You do make it quite clear um and I certainly don't intend to detract from his role because it, and y- your book by the way is well illustrated with many photos from his uh, the, uh different stages of the um the creation process for some of the notable sculptures that are credited to him. Um and different
2: so- and different stages in uh in hair loss too. I sort of like He identified with him because uh, I had a lot of hair when I was 20 also and lost all but a little bit. And he uh, he lost his hair too, and He really he loved his hair more than I did. He wrote about it and wrote to girls that he knew saying um, that his his hairline was receding. He took it very seriously. Poor guy.
1: Well, well, I'm in the same boat, but I can take the hair loss if I could have the wealth. So
2: I know he was a rich he was a rich guy. He was a rich man. And
1: and I do want to talk about this in in terms of his notoriety. Before we get to Lincoln, I do want to discuss the Lincoln Memorial and the selection and creation process, as as well as the dedication ceremony in 1922. I want to talk about that. But before we get to that, um, the notoriety that uh, French had, it obviously, of course, logically increases over time with more commissions and uh, successful reviews of his work. But It seemed to me um, that it was notable that really his main, um, sometimes rival, but certainly a friend and supporter, is Saint-Gaudens. Can you explain this relationship that they had and developed over time?
2: I wish I could. I tried. Um, Saint-Gaudens was a little bit older and much more famous. There's always a bit of a rivalry. Uh, On one at one moment, Saint-Gaudens might say to the organizers of the World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago, who approached him to do the central statue. He he would say, I'm not the one to do it. My friend Dan French should do it. It was going to be the biggest statue in the world. It was supposed to rival the Statue of Liberty. Um, the problem is it was made of fugitive material and it burned up. Typical Chicago story. And it wasn't as great as the Statue of Liberty, but he did it. He got very famous From his work at the world's fair yet at the same by the same token he could get a uh, french could get a commission to do a statue of gallaudet for gallaudet college and not only would saint gordon support uh, a move to take the statue commission away from french and give it to a hearing impaired uh rival but later on the eve of french's wedding Saint-Gaudens mentioned to him that he didn't think the legs were quite right, and saint and French postponed his wedding, and and his wife blamed Saint-Gaudens, and yet they were friends. Saint-Gaudens uh, French went to Saint-Gaudens' uh, home, and uh, his summer home, and really, I think that's where he, de- he de- got the inspiration for building the kind of luxurious home and studio that he later built for himself in Stockbridge, Massachusetts. St. gaudens was always a looming figure. Um, I think it's very possible that had F- St. gaudens not died young of cancer, French might not have gotten to be the most famous sculptor in America. Articles of the day said, the saint is dead, long live, you know, French. Uh, it was almost like a passing of the torch. And then when French becomes the leading American sculpture advocate on the board of the Metropolitan Museum of Art. He champions French. Uh, I'm sorry. He champions St. Gaudens. The Met acquires its great collection of St. Gaudens medals and statues because of French's interest. They have their first special exhibition devoted to Augustus St. Gaudens because French makes them do it. So I don't know. It's a rivalry and a love affair, The you know, a, a love friendship between those two guys. And, um, I'm not sure French would have become French had St. Gaudens lived longer, though.
1: Another element of uh, his earlier career that I wanted to discuss is the commission uh, to create a statue of John Harvard and the fact that he had the unenviable position of trying to create a, a real historical person, but with no historical likeness to model it on. Can you explain that process and how he threaded that needle?
2: Yeah, I, I think it's the, I saw it as less remarkable than, than, um, than, than you've inferred perhaps, but I will admit, and I was surprised that people of the day were absolutely flabbergasted that somebody could make a statue of somebody who was no longer living. Uh, there were still people doing George Washington and Abraham Lincoln, um, uh, at that period. So not sure why it was such a sensation, but the press reported it breathlessly. How is he going to do it? And uh, this was a Pilgrim-era minister. Sorry. I'm sorry
1: to interrupt. Weren't they noting, though? I was uh, just noting that, I mean, with Lincoln and Washington, you've got uh, pictures from life, uh, but with Harvard, you don't, right?
2: You don't. Um, maybe it was more remarkable that I've acknowledged. I don't know. Um whatever the, the real fascination with the dearth of models, he got a ton of publicity for this, um, had a very big success with John Harvard. Um, and the way he did it uh, is to go to the Massachusetts Historical Society and look up images of pilgrims and clothing of pilgrims because Reverend Harvard died uh, uh, around the time uh, in the pilgrim era. And um, then he he asked his friend, uh, whose name was John Hoare, H O A R, to pose for the face because Hoare was a you know a descendant of early settlers of Massachusetts, and he had a kind of delicate aquiline face that uh, French associated with early settlers. So whatever the combination, it was brilliant. The statue was widely received. Uh, my take on it is that never has a college founder or inspirer gotten so much traction for so small a gift. He left them like $100 and, uh, and a hundred dollars and a few books and they named the whole school after him. The rest sure. is history.
1: Right. And um, another element of his uh, career, we had mentioned the fact that he uh, is using others. Uh, he has these collaborators or these workers that assist him. Um, it seems that uh, although he may protest uh, that he's too busy, it seems ultimately he accepts Every single commission he's got, it was dizzying to me how he has multiple notable, important commissions that uh, turn out well and are well received. But he's working on them simultaneously, and so does he essentially never say no to anyone. I mean, as long as they're paying, of course. And I don't mean Uh, to cheapen his motive, but I mean obviously um, he's concerned with uh, uh, his career, and he can't (laughs) just simply take stuff uh, for free. But nevertheless, he's working on a lot. He's juggling a lot.
2: I think it is a kind of an assembly line thing. He's while he's working on a new clay model, you know, a one foot model, he can walk. He can walk into the next room and see a plaster version of a larger model for something else. And, um, you know, phone up the foundry and say, how's my how's my bronze doing? And he really works it that way for most of the prime period of his career. For 20 or so years, he's got uh, projects in different phases. He's always worried about, you know, waking up one morning and having nothing to do, it seems to me. So he's constantly working to uh, to keep moving.
1: All right. So in regard to the uh, most famous Commission, which he will, will ultimately be his uh, most well-known legacy, the Lincoln Memorial. Uh, let's talk about um, the process by which the sculptor and the design of the memorial were selected, because French plays an interesting role uh, at the very beginning of that process.
2: He sure does. He's the chairman of the National Commission of Fine Arts, appointed by President Taft. President Taft, in turn, becomes the head of the Lincoln Memorial Commission, and both of those bodies are responsible for commissioning an architectural plan for the memorial and a sculptor in collaboration with the architect for the statue inside. And French doesn't recuse himself from consideration. In fact, he doesn't even resign from the commission until Woodrow Wilson is president. So I don't know, maybe that's the way the, the boys worked in those days. Uh, pretty dicey. And when the some uh, members of Congress who were you know trying to save money, uh, which is what they used to do, uh, decided they should re- really do a copy of St. Gaudens' famous uh, sculpture in Chicago, French had to use every bit of his influence uh, on the architect and on the commission, to get them to turn that down because we wouldn't want a mere replica, as they all said, in the in the new Lincoln Memorial.
1: Well, before the uh, sculptor is selected, don't they select the architect first, and that happens to be someone who's really well-known to French?
2: They select Henry Bacon, um, a young Chicago architect whom French um, met at during the World's Columbian Exposition, you know, 12 or so years before uh, in Chicago. And they collaborated through the years. Uh, um, Bacon would do the architectural background for sculptures, and French would do the sculpture. And they did that, for example, for the standing Lincoln, French created for Lincoln, Nebraska, for the state capital. Bacon created a slab for the background with the words of the Gettysburg Address. so. Yeah, uh, French was his senior partner on many projects, and uh, but again, no competition for the architect, and for this expensive national competition uh, or national commission, no competition for the sculptor, never, no public, uh, uh, you know, <clears throat> request for models or proposals, pretty shocking, couldn't do that today, uh, but... Uh, French was famous enough by this period and had just done a very well-received Lincoln for Nebraska. So no one objected, not even the national, not even the chairman of the National Commission for Fine Arts, who happened to be himself.
1: Right, right. And so um, it is notable, of course, that uh, he already is associated with a pretty well-known statue of Lincoln, um, which is uh, quite different in tone and in appearance. Um, can you briefly explain uh, that and in, in the role that that played in preparing him for this?
2: Yeah, he did so much research on Lincoln. He did so much research on Lincoln for this uh, statue that was supposed to be a Lincoln Centennial, 1909 work. But by then, French was famous enough that he didn't rush, didn't get dedicated till around 1911. And he studied photography books. He spoke to, corresponded with people who had known Lincoln and magically created a pose of Lincoln as an orator with his head bowed, his hands clasped in front of him. uh, So realistic, apparently, that one woman who had heard or had seen Lincoln orate back on the prairie before he was president described to him the pose that he would assume before beginning a speech uh, as exactly this. And then when the model was unveiled in Nebraska, the woman looked at it and said, but you must have seen him to have, to have imagined this posture. And French said, no, I was, I was 10 years old when he was elected president. So it's just a remarkable intuition of how Lincoln would have paused and posed before beginning an oration. What I think is consistent from the Lincoln statue in Nebraska to the memorial is the idea of Lincoln's downcast head. He kept that uh, He kept that for the Lincoln Memorial. He wanted the gaze on his sculptures of Lincoln to meet the audience eyeball to eyeball. It was very important to him. And one of the reasons he wanted a seated Lincoln for the memorial is because he thought a standing Lincoln would be too high for people approaching from the bottom step to see face to face from the bottom. If you've ever noticed, if you stand on the bottom step of the Lincoln Memorial, um, you can see the enthroned Lincoln's face. It just gets bigger and bigger, but it's never obscured by the roofline. And that's the magic of somebody with a great eye. French had a terrific eye for proportion and for the confrontation between a work of art and an audience.
1: And um, he had to adapt whatever sculpture he would ultimately make uh, to the pre-existing building design of Bacon, correct? In other words, Bacon's design comes first, then you have to figure out what sculpture is going to be suited to it, right?
2: I'm glad you asked that question because from the plans, French decided that a 12-foot-high sculpture would be just right on a pedestal. And when the interior was completed, the, the atrium that we know today, he went down to Washington to visit and walked up those steps and was horrified because he immediately sensed that the room was too vast to, to not make what he had conceived look unimportant. I know that's a double negative, but the room was too big for a 12-foot sculpture. And again, his eye clicked in. He went back to the sponsors and said, "It's a mistake. The room is too big. I apologize, but I need to make it seven feet taller, and I need another twenty-five thousand um, dollars, which was fifty percent more than his original deal." And The members of Congress said, "Basically, are you out of your mind?" So he made a head out of plaster, in the proportion of a nineteen-foot sculpture statue. He had it shipped to Washington. He had it suspended from the ceiling by ropes. And then he called a, exactly where it was, would eventually sit. And then he called in a, a succession of VIPs, including Lincoln's own surviving son, Robert, to look at it and to examine his proposal and to a man and woman, because he also brought a sculptor, mm-hmm. uh, Evelyn Longman, down there. They all said, this is exactly right. It could never have been anything else. So he won the day and he got to make a larger statue.
1: And of course, uh, the I, I'm sure it was no small matter that Lincoln's son approved of this quite enthusiastically, right?
2: It was no small matter, but to get those two heavyweights together was a, a sort of a, an exercise in, um, I don't know, who shot John or whatever you call it. Maybe that's a poor choice of words in the Lincoln family, but Robert invited French to come up to they They had summer homes that were you know a couple of hours apart, and um Robert said, "Well, why don't you bring up the model to to Manchester Vermont and French said, "Oh, it looks so beautiful in my studio. Why don't you come down to see it here And Robert said, "Well, I can't, but maybe you can come up here and French said, "Well, I'm bringing it to New York. it's the end of the season. Why don't you come to New York And Robert said, "Well, I'm only going to spend a few hours in New York I'm going to Washington, and this went on for a couple of years. Nobody would visit the other persons place. I don't know if it was out of arrogance or pride or obstinacy. I I can see French always wanted to control the environment. And he probably wanted Robert to see it in the ideal lighting conditions of his skylit studio. But still, he is the son of President Lincoln. He's a former cabinet member. French held firm. And I don't think Robert saw it until that head was suspended in in Washington. And then he saw the rest of it.
1: So, we have this um, process of creation, and then ultimately, as you described earlier, there, this is a massive uh, undertaking physically to get these blocks put together uh, right. for the uh, uh, ultimate statue. And it's ultimately dedicated um, in, at the end of May in 1922. Uh, and you begin the book with a description of the ceremony. Uh, which is notable, obviously, because of the irony of Lincoln's role in history and how it's perceived differently by different people. Could you explain how that ceremony was actually quite important in understanding this statue and its meaning?
2: The statue of Lincoln and the memorial itself were clearly conceived as an homage to sectional reconciliation, but not racial reconciliation. There is no mention of the Emancipation Proclamation in the building. The Gettysburg Address and the second inaugural are carved in the interior. The reunited states are listed by name on the exterior. And Lincoln is enthroned, but he's not holding a scroll. He's not liberating a person of color as so many other statues of an earlier period uh, focused on. Uh, At the ceremony, it didn't matter that much to African-Americans in Washington in 1922, for most of whom Lincoln was still an authentic hero and liberator. And they flocked early to the ceremony to get good seats. Only the, the commissioner of public buildings, double irony, the man who had the job that French's uncle once had, was a Southerner. And he had mounted police. He had mounted police, roused them out of their seats, and banished them to a a so-called colored section at the back of the crowd, where the reflecting pool is today, where they had very dim views, and Confederate veterans took their places in the good seats. So it was a totally segregated memorial dedication. And to make matters worse, although people didn't know it at the time— the only African American speaker of the day had his angrier words deleted by the Warren Harding administration. He said something or he drafted something like until Lincoln's promise of freedom can be fulfilled and until everyone has equal opportunity then Lincoln's unfinished work is still unfinished. Well he wasn't allowed to say that and if he insisted on it he was going to lose his place on the program so he gave a truncated, censored speech, and that was the shameful dedication, you know, hailed in the white press and the mainstream press uh, as a great day in American history and, of course, a masterpiece of sculpture. But I read the black press, uh, and they were very critical and hurt and angry about the ceremony. Many of them said the dedication hasn't happened yet. And indeed, in my view, the dedicated, the Lincoln Memorial was not repurposed to what it has become since for 17 more years.
1: And that, of course, you're referring to the performance of uh, Marian Anderson.
2: Right. And as we speak, I'm sitting in Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt's home in New York City. Um, you alluded to my... Uh, Directorship of the Roosevelt House. Well, it's actually their New York City townhouse. It's a place where Franklin and Eleanor developed their passion for public service and Eleanor for human rights. Um, and uh, it was Eleanor who heard that Marian Anderson, the great African American opera singer, was being banned from the Daughters of the American Revolution. Their building is right across the street from the White House. And she was banned because of her race. So it was Eleanor who asked Secretary of the Interior Harold Ickes to make the Lincoln Memorial available. There had never been a concert there. So on a rainy Easter Sunday, 75,000 people gathered at the Lincoln Memorial to hear Marian Anderson sing My Country, Tis of Thee, and Nobody Knows the Trouble I've Seen, and and one opera. Song, it was also broadcast live on radio. Can still be accessed. It's scratchy, but it's pretty extraordinary to hear that voice. And from that moment on, aided a bit later in the year by Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Aided later in the year by Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, the Frank Capra movie with Jimmy Stewart, watching a little boy reading the words of the Gettysburg Address while a man of color, an older man. Uh, cries visibly. The Lincoln Memorial changed and it became not a center of sectional reconciliation, but a scene to stimulate national aspiration to fulfill that dream of unfinished work, uh, a more perfect union. And it's been that ever since on through Martin Luther King Jr., the I Have a Dream speech to rallies and demonstrations and uh, marches. And it's become the scene or the backdrop where every American president goes the night before the inauguration, uh, it's almost like uh, the the you know the 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 bachelor's dinner before the wedding between the American people and their next leader. So it's changed completely, and uh, I like to think that the second go around, um, um, America got it right. I just wish French had lived to see the the emergence of the Lincoln Memorial as a more powerful symbol, even than the one that he had first created.
1: Um, in regard to this, uh, goes back to one aspect of his, um, uh, treatment of his works. Once they were in the public eye, you had, uh, noted in passing that, um, he in some ways, um, was concerned with how the public regarded his, uh, statues, but especially he's concerned with, um, who owns the copyrights to uh, making miniatures. And so uh, he had a bad taste in his mouth from one of his early uh, sculptures that he, I guess, signed the rights away to which he signed the rights away and um, was chagrined that he was unable to um, seek remuneration from uh, the later uh, small miniatures that were sold quite widely. But he, He was no fool later. It was something he was very conscious of. And even so with the copyright to the statue of the Lincoln Memorial. Um, And so the copyright to that, did he keep that himself for the rest of his life? No,
2: the Lincoln Memorial, that was too hard to control. And although he did a few reductions um, uh, and I think it was sort of open season, it, was, it became such a tourist attraction so quickly that cheap, uh, you know, stone souvenirs were available pretty quickly. And he just did not get the full control, nor should he have, because it's really, it's a federal commission. Uh, it sort of, you know, belongs to the American people. But the one in the uh, others, like the Minuteman, he did many versions of it in bronze reductions, as they call them uh he even did the one in nebraska without quite having the right to do it i mean uh he wasn't entitled apparently by contract and when uh, the people there realized that he had done it they i think they must have written him a pretty stern letter because he wrote back apologetically to say he didn't know but he had no intention of stopping so it went on um so he did become wealthy from his own from his own works and I found examples of friends writing to him if they had seen Renegade or, or, you know, unauthorized versions or plagiarized versions. So he was ever alert because they're his babies and he's, you know, he wanted uh, control. And you're right about that first work. He sold the rights for $50, which is really not all that bad for a kid who had not done anything before. And all it was, was a sculpture of two owls hugging each other. Uh, it's sort of like a spooning or uh According uh, image, and he saw it in a shop window years later in London. And rather than say, "Oh my God, my early work is in London," I'm so flattered. And he said, "I can't believe that I'm not making any money from this. I sold the rights too quickly." But you know, that's that's hindsight. Uh, he did fine later, but I don't think the Lincoln Memorial enriched him beyond the very, very healthy fee he got of I, I estimate about seventy five thousand dollars.
1: Considerable for the time. Yes. So uh, I want to go beyond the actual scope of your book in terms of its time frame and talk about, um, uh, just briefly, uh, public art today. It seems I was struck by the fact that not just for the Lincoln Memorial, which, of course, was notable because of the subject, but for all kinds of unveilings, um, they were often Twenty or thirty thousand people for some of these unveilings, and and these were local affairs in many ways. These were not things that were necessarily covered by national media, although they could be. Um, Was that is that indicative of the public's regard for sculpture, or was that merely a reflection of that particular celebrity celebrity artist or what does that is that indicative? In other words, a representative of anything about the 19th century and the public's regard for art?
2: Well, I would I would say all of the above, plus the celebrity subjects of some of these sculptures. Uh, they were absolutely these dedications were very big deals. But you know, this was the age before movies and uh, and uh, you know mass communications. Uh, the only rallying point, and, and also professional sports, which draws you know, 60,000 people to single events. These were those big events, statue dedications, um, uh, county fairs, church services, revival meetings, sort of passed for community involvement and entertainment at the same time. Uh, and they did attract national celebrities. The the Minuteman dedication attracted the, the president of the United States, Ulysses S. Grant, and some civil war generals. Um, the families of General Grant came to the dedication of French's Grant statue in Philadelphia. Robert Lincoln came to the Lincoln Memorial dedication, along with uh, the Speaker of the House, the President of the United States, the Chief Justice. So they were big celebrity-filled affairs. However, I I think the last few years have shown us that the public interest in uh, in public statuary, while it might not be as obvious as it was in terms of numbers all at once is still very strong emotionally. Why else would there be the kind of response that there has been in the last few years over Confederate and lost cause memorials? It's because public art really tugs at people and really emotionally involves people and sometimes offends people. Uh, I think that's the constant and that's even more remarkable than the big crowds in, uh, in the 19th century, because people are still so, um, uh, emotionally connected to public statuary.
1: But it seems to me, and that leads to my question about statuary today and the icon- uh, iconoclasm that is essentially, yeah. um, what we're discussing today, because it seems that the notoriety and the concern and the emotional reactions people have is, is of a different character. In other words, um, it's not in regard to the quality of the art as a representation, et cetera, but rather it's in regard to the political sensibilities of the contemporary viewers. Um, And so can you uh, give me your thoughts on whether or not this is a diminishment of art uh, and its politicization is a beneficial uh, development uh, for society, or do you think of this as deleterious problem?
2: Well, that's hard. It's a hard question to answer. Um, But I will say that we do have a bit of an iconoclastic tradition in the United States. And I can give you a great example. Daniel Chester French did statues of four continents to adorn the new customs house on the southern tip of Manhattan. It was one of his more famous uh, early 20th century commissions. I think they're 1903. They happened to be sitting right near the site of the statue of King George V that the colonists tore down in July 1776 in a fury after the first public reading of the Declaration of Independence. So this kind of reaction, and, and why not call that a modern political reaction to a work of art? Um, it's sort of the same thing. Uh, King George was the lead, leader and the hero, and by 1776, he was the villain uh, who was taxing without representation. So it's happened before. Uh, so that let me. That's how I set the stage here. Um, it, it, it's. I, I find iconoclasm painful when it involves what I judge in my own personal, you know, reaction to 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 art to be worthy statues. I'm fearful that the Beautiful statue of Robert E. Lee uh, by Mercier in Richmond will fall or be shipped away. I don't think it'll be broken up like King George V was to make weapons. But I think it's a, it's a loss. Um, I think the fact that the statue of Peter the Great survived in communist-ruled Leningrad, now again St. Petersburg, was a tribute to wiser heads prevailing about something that the communists found offensive. Um, I think that the Arch of Titus surviving in Rome, even though it's offensive to Jews, is a recognition that it's a great work of antiquity, even though it shows the Romans pillaging um, menorahs from the first temple in Jerusalem. Uh, So I think this is a turbulent moment for public art. Um, Where does public art belong? Does it belong in, in the public square? Should there be parks devoted to... Discredited heroes, like they have in uh, Budapest, in order to preserve the work without celebrating the heroes, it's very complicated. But I will say that my position is sort of on, is losing ground fast. I think the the pain is so great, the perpetuation of white supremacy is still so palpable that the, uh, the any symbols of that attitude are going to have to be sacrificed in order to get this country back to, well, to Lincoln's vision for it as it happens.
1: The book is Monument Man, The Life and Art of Daniel Chester French. And we've been joined today by its author, Harold Holzer. Mr. Holzer, thank you so much for joining us on New Books Network. It's been a pleasure.
2: Ian, thank you.